Hey, we're uh, in this series and we're kind of wrapping up. We're kind of really on the very end of the downhill slope, finishing up the series about suffering and evil. You know that for about four weeks, we spent time going through different aspects of free will, natural disasters. We kind of debated for a long time. It was very open forum. We really listened to all of your comments. And then last week, it was probably one of the least interactive sessions we've had where I actually spent time taking all of the things we had said and kind of sequencing them in order to kind of make some sense out of all the comments and all the things we talked about and bring some order to it. We also talked about what our response should be. So putting aside all philosophical arguments for a moment, what should our response be to suffering? How do we respond in our own life when suffering befalls us? And also what do we do when others around us are suffering? And that was very important because all of this is interesting to people who have philosophical objections. But when suffering befalls us, we really need to focus a little bit more on how do we respond pastorally or just in a friendship way to other people. Tonight, we're going to start answering some of the questions that you put on three by five cards and tossed in the box. We're doing that tonight. See how many of them we can get through. Next week, we're going to wrap up your questions. This is where we ended up last week. If you give me a couple seconds to recap. We were talking about what our response should be when we're in suffering. And we looked at different verses that talked about the ways that we could respond with faith, anticipation, perseverance, surrender, and even, yes, gratefulness and thankfulness for sorrow. And, of course, when sorrow, suffering, and evil befalls other people, that we need to be very, very humble about attributing the cause, but be very eager to help. And also put love for others above self. That was Jesus' description of love. That you love someone to the point that you lay down your life for them. And that we're ready to even go to that distance for others. And remember how much of the suffering we've discussed in here results from the fact that we're not doing our part. So much of suffering is caused by us when we refuse to do what God tells us to do. Or when we do exactly the opposite of what he wants us to do. So here are some of the verses. I'm not going to read them all. But just remember, a lot of people get right down to the bottom of Romans 8.28 and say, we know that in all things God works for the good, and then stop there. So last week we really analyzed that verse in context to understand how it works, because you could very easily misunderstand this verse if you didn't understand the entire context. And we concluded that God is really working everything in his sovereignty for the good of those who love him, but that might not happen in this world, that he's really working it out for the good of those who love him in an eternal sense. So for many of us, we may never even witness what it is that this pain or this suffering is causing and how it would ever fit in. We also talked that we might not even be able to comprehend it, even if he explained it. We also looked at this verse, which would be very important tonight to answer some of your questions. This is from Romans 3, starting in verse 10, that there is no one righteous, not even one. Notice there's no exceptions. It just says there's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. So that was the verse we kind of left off on. Here's the closing comment from last week. If we deserve nothing in this life apart from death and then judgment, that's really what we deserve. And if we cannot know when calamity will befall us, if we rarely understand why trouble has befallen us, if it's only by the grace of God that we have this moment of peace that we exist in now, then we should never take such grace for granted nor turn against God when such grace is withheld, but eagerly anticipate the good things that the Lord has prepared for those who love him. 
I can't tell you that I think probably out of all the things we've talked about, this ultimately will become to me the most important thing that I've gotten out of this series. And last week, we even at the end, we kind of did a little breathing exercise, if you remember. We were just like focusing on the fact that we're even allowed to breathe for the second. That we have this life right now because we really don't deserve that. So that's what leads to your questions tonight. You guys ask these questions. Now that we've kind of wrapped up a little bit last week on our response, let's look at some of your questions that are left hanging that we haven't addressed in the six weeks that we've been doing this. Now, there are some questions that I wasn't going to respond to, and actually you asked them, but in fairness, I want to tell you what they are, so maybe we should change the title to not responding to your questions. So here are the questions we're not going to respond to, and, and there's a reason why. One of them is, what will heaven be like if we have free will but no ability to sin? You guys know that if you go to our website, there are six podcasts on what will heaven be like. So I'm not going to try to summarize this answer into a very, very limited sense. I'm going to tell you to do something. Go to the site and podcast all six of them, and you'll find out what we've said about that already. Likewise, these questions were asked. How much power does Satan have, and where does spiritual warfare fit into evil? And the whole discussion we've had, why is it not seen as important as it is in other cultures? Again, there is a series on our website on spiritual warfare. And we did take on the subject of who is Satan, what's Satan's power, what's the limitations, what is spiritual warfare. So plug in there if you want. All right? Just go to exoduspodcast.com and download those, and you can listen to them in your car on the way to work. All right? So, but in fairness, you asked them, didn't want to make you think that I just tossed them. Here is the ones we're going to respond to tonight. And what I'd like to do is I'm going to put the question up. I'm going to give a couple responses, and then I'll open it up, see if you guys agree, disagree, have additional comments to add, all right? Why does God deliver, protect, or save some and not others? Put another way, why does God respond to some people suffering with specific action and seem to remain inactive in other people's situations. And, of course, this person observed, seems disproportionate, like in the third world, he just leaves people alone. So, taking the things that we've all said in this room, here are some of my responses. We do know that at times, God can and does intervene to prevent suffering. But we rarely know how often. And that's something I think we have to really be aware of. We don't know how often he's already preventing it. We don't know how many times he's acting to prevent things already that we just don't see. Maybe if God just lifted his hand completely, this earth would completely collapse right away. And we talked about the verses in Colossians that say that Jesus himself, he holds all things together. What would happen if he just really just let it go? So that's the first cautionary statement. Here's another one. We have to be careful when we're assuming that God has intervened in a particular situation and avoid assuming that he has not. That's the common mistake we make. We could be like Job's friends, by the way, always making the wrong choices about what's really happened. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, God saved me, and I think that's great because God is ultimately the source of a lot of things, but you know, sometimes we really don't know, as we found out in the series, what's going on. So the question is asking, why would he respond to some people's suffering and not others? It puts us in a weird spot where we kind of are trying to figure out if he has or he hasn't with certainty, and we can never be certain. We should also avoid assuming that he just hasn't done anything. We make that assumption too. Like, where is God in this situation? Uh, He's probably a lot of places in this situation. Very difficult for us to just say, he's not even here. How do we know that? How do we know what it would be like without him? All right, back to what we were talking about last week. Really, the answer to many of these questions is, we cannot know God's overall plan for how he's going to work all things for good for those who love him. 
God's plan, remember, is so infinite. We said God was so sovereign that every single thing he has to either cause or allow. At least that's the bias I've taken. Imagine all the different decisions he's got to work through. And if you said, why did this particular thing happen if God came to you and tried to explain it? I don't think we would understand it. If you said, this seems like senseless things to me, or why did you intervene in their life if we knew that, and not in their life if we knew that? And if God gave you the answer, unlike the one he gave Job that we read last week, but if God gave you the answer, I'm not so sure we would understand it. I'm not so sure if he said, let me tell you all the ways this is going to impact the plan I have. I don't think it could fit into our minds. And that's why it comes down to our faith that God works all things to the good of those who love him in an eternal sense. In a way that even what doesn't make sense to us now might make sense. Yes. Well, what about like biblical accounts of God intervening in some things? Like, I don't think that you can get an answer to this question, but I think in a lot of biblical accounts, it um, you know portrays God as directly, you know, intervening for His people or directly causing something like you know, killing all of the firstborn sons of Egyptians, you know, things like that. Yeah, and we can see that. So. First, to kind of take one part of what you're saying, even though it's not directly your point, when we have a biblical account, at least we know that God is saying, this is what's happened, right? But I agree that what your main point, if I understand it, is it still seems problematic that there we know that God has acted one way to help some people and that it has hurt others, okay? And that concept has come up over and over in this group, which is it seems that we're a little squeamish to believe that God can deal any way he wants with his people, That still makes us feel a little uneasy, but that would be part of the answer. Here's another one. How can the salvation of one person from suffering be explained as a blessing from God, while someone else who is suffering greater is not being saved? Same answer as before. Just copy that whole thing and insert it in there, but there's a little bit more to be said. We really have to be sensitive as a people about what we attribute a blessing as. I'm not saying that God doesn't bless his people and that we're not even blessed just for to be breathing. But here's the example I'm thinking of. You ever see those guys who like, you know, plane crashes and one guy survives and goes, God saved me? Like, what does that imply? That God didn't save all the other people. Now, for those of you who are on the strong side of sovereignty, you're going to say, right, God allowed that person to be saved and everybody else he didn't allow to be saved. So in a way, it's kind of a true statement. But the person who's making the statement isn't thinking that way. He's thinking, God has this super purpose for me, and everybody else in the plane, oh well, who cares? We saw the same thing happen, and I was talking to Jeremy about this when like, 9-11 happened. All these people said, like, well, God kept me from going into the buildings that day. Okay, so he, you're special, and everybody else that was there maybe wasn't. We have to be very careful about that language, because I think it, it can give people a wrong impression when you just say it, but we don't use that language. We don't say, well, in all things, God allowed them. So if he allowed me to live, that's his will, and I don't understand it. We don't take that posture of humility. We just go, I'm cool, I'm special, God loves me, I was saved. And then we go tell testimonies about it, and all the other families of all the other people are just just left in the dust. So I do believe that every breath we take is a blessing from God. I believe that everything we have is a blessing from God. We have scripture, James 1.17. Every good thing comes from God. Every good thing. It has no other source. So we have to remain humble. 
Yes, and thankful in everything, even in suffering, illness, and death. Yeah. I think it's powerful so just with suffering, illness, and death. I mean, is it your friend Chris who, who has some issues? You know, I mean, there are numerous stories, and, and we have lots of them. You know, people in the midst of their suffering or illness or, or whatever find a great strength in God, and, and it empowers their entire ministry. So that's not to minimize the suffering in, in and of itself. It's just once again to say that there is a possibility of actually remaining humble and actually giving thanks and actually using one story and suffering for God's glory and for, for amazing, uh, you know, testimony. So. Yeah, Morgan's referencing a friend of mine who's a national speaker um, who's suffered one disability after another in his life and through great pain gets up to speak to others about what God can do through brokenness and suffering. He's also friends with somebody else I was talking about yesterday was Johnny Erickson Tata. Some of you know her. She was the swimmer who was paralyzed at 17. She's written a number of books, but the most amazing parts when you read her words are how God used this to bring her closer to him in a way that no other way could do that. That's very hard to deal with. When I read those things, I think, I'm not sure I want to know God that well, if that's what it takes. But through all of the writing that she's done, it's touched so many different people, but it's really most important if you read her writing about her understanding and her relationship with God as a result of it. I think the point of this question that I'm trying to point out is let's be very careful and sensitive to people who are in difficult circumstances and also be humble that we don't know the answers. We can't know. So we shouldn't stick a sure stake on any of them. Okay? Anything else? Yeah. It could also be problematic because like some people are in the position where they can from their suffering take it and do something because they have the resources because you know they have a certain economic standing whatever but other people who may be suffering from something similar in another country don't have the resources to even overcome that suffering that's right i agree and and i don't also want to be heard as saying that when suffering happens that if you overcome, like you somehow change the nature of it or anything like that. Actually, that may have been the reason, but other times it may not have been. All right, let me push forward a little bit more. Why do some people who seem like they deserve to suffer seem to receive no suffering? We first have to be careful again that we're not too sure about the reasons for suffering. So if there's an idea in this that you know people who cause suffering will receive it themselves, that might be too formulaic. But God can cause it or allow it. And I think this is the type of question that explains why I believe so strongly in a heaven and a hell. Because I don't believe that anywhere in Scripture it guarantees that justice will be carried out in this life. So in my words, in plain English, I'd say, there are going to be a lot of people who do very bad things. And if you're looking to say, well, where is the suffering that comes on them? Why doesn't God punish them? Why doesn't he judge them? It seems like... They did the worst things and then just got off. My response would be, for now. For now. But I don't believe that in the eternal sense at all. In fact, if there wasn't a heaven and a hell, I would have even a greater problem with all of these things. Because then there would be no place to say, where is the justice in that situation? Some people troubled by the whole topic of hell and how it works and how it can ever be fair to have an eternal punishment for temporal sins. And I'd like to talk to you about that if you're one of those people because I've been looking into it, but I don't want to bring in the whole discussion here because it'll totally derail us. Okay? How did sin and evil come into existence? If God can't be around it, 
how did he create evil? Is evil created or does it just exist? How about before I put up any answers on the screen, you want to take this one on? If you're asked this fairly by a friend, since you've been sitting here for five or six weeks, what would you say in response? Yeah. Free will. Free will. So if God can't be around it, how did he create evil? doesn't have to create Any choice that you make that's apart from God's will is evil, and you have free will to choose, so it just exists on, on its own. Okay, yeah. That we talked about it a while ago. I, I still like the answer of it's, it's not like, I don't think evil is like a thing, but it is just like the absence of God. Okay. Jeremy, go ahead. I was just going to say, sir, I don't, I don't think free will gets you out of it unless you're talking about some free will that's uncreated. I mean, at the end of the day, if we're part of God's creation, then even, I guess, conceptually speaking, our own free will would be a created element, which I don't know if that would just solve the problem. Okay, that puts it back on God in some way. Let me walk through a couple of these. I don't believe that God created evil. I agree with some of you who said that evil's not a thing that exists by itself. Evil, as we've defined it, is not doing what God commands or doing what he prohibits. Giving us free will requires the possibility that we just not do what he commands or do what he prohibits, which then brings about evil. I just believe that evil results. It's not a thing. Now, I'm also sensitive to what was also brought up. That doesn't get God off the hook in your minds, right? Am I characterizing that right? Because he at least allowed free will, which allowed for the possibility of evil, which then he knew that it was going to happen. But that's not the same thing as saying God created evil. Even if you're going to charge God with saying, well, you let this happen. You knew it was going to happen. But it's not the same thing as saying he created it. I don't believe. Is that fair? Yeah, complicated, but... That's the stickiest one we've hit so far, that and the one that Brittany's already talked about, about all the suffering of innocence or the places where he seems to bring upon suffering for those people. Here it is. Can God's standard be applied to him? The Ten Commandments is thou shalt not kill. Yet God has ordered the death of others as well as being personally involved in the death of some. Not all of these people necessarily deserve their faith, the example given by the person asking the question is, what about a baby in the flood? Would God be considered evil? Another person asked, why did God allow genocide in the Old Testament? All right. This is troubling. You want to answer? Go ahead. Well, kind of on that last one, I think the more troubling thing is the question of why did God mandate genocide rather than just allow? Yeah, that's a good call out because I had that call out on my notes, which like if we're going to make it harder for us is he didn't just allow genocide, he instructed it. You know, he said, like, you go do this, right? Like, there's this part of the question here. It says about how about God being involved in the death of some. If you take a literal reading of the flood, he, does, he was involved in the death of many, not some. In fact, he brought it about. Okay, what about this God? Because this seems to be very troubling from our perspective. I still maintain that God does not commit evil. So the ultimate question that was being asked was, like, we're going to hold him to the standard You know, is God evil? No. I also take issue with this. We've already read this verse, and I said it would be important that no one is righteous, not even one. We all deserve our fate, and I put in parentheses, even babies. Now, that's really hard. A couple of us were getting together yesterday to kind of run through these questions and see how we could bounce them off one another, and this is hard, I'll admit it. Because you're saying, wait a minute, I know what you're picturing. A one-month-old baby in the flood has, it doesn't, hasn't done anything. 
so where do we get that idea? Is it because of some idea of original sin that just taints all human beings, that we are just tainted, the whole creation is tainted? There's no one who's righteous? Maybe. Is it that we don't have righteousness apart from God? We cannot earn our righteousness apart from God, even if we're a one-month-old baby? Maybe. Am I reading too much into Paul's words in Romans about no one being righteous, where he's citing Old Testament passages that say kind of the same thing? You could take that position. The position I'm taking is no one's righteous. No one. There are no exceptions. I know. Go ahead. Fight. Well, I think all the study I've done in like ancient Jewish tradition, they don't believe in um, like original sin and like everybody being sinful. It's more like a proclivity for good and bad. Okay. And to be fair, not all Christians believe in original sin, okay? So let's be fair and not just paint the whole brush and say it's... That's why I'm asking, is it because of that idea? Is it because Paul is saying... And remember, Paul is now re-adopting things that have already been said, and he's putting his own post-crucifixion spin on Old Testament teachings, but being somebody who's pretty well-versed in different traditions, he's picking one. And he's also announcing this kind of as a theology. I mean, you take the whole book of Romans and say, a lot of our theology is based on this. And he's saying this in response to a whole section that talks about very difficult passages. All right, so he's kind of reminding that no one's righteous. So I could agree that maybe if you took a more Hebraic approach to it, it would be different. But he's putting a different spin on it. And that's kind of the tradition that we're following. But that might not solve it either way. Even if Paul puts that spin on it, that doesn't mean that that's the answer. You might believe that, you know what, maybe Paul was not even thinking about babies. Maybe the person who put the question in there, and we're trying to make it fit. So let's be honest, it's tough. Yeah. Um, to answer the entire question, um, if we go back to um, evil being defined as anything that doesn't align with God's will, we could also say that God dictates morality rather than morality dictating God. Therefore, God can say, in this situation, I want you to kill all these people and commit genocide, I want this baby to die because he's God and he has the right to. Okay, but wouldn't it make you feel better (laughs) if God could say that and we deserved it? Well, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I think that's what we're all reaching for. I just don't know if we're going to get there. I mean, some people could use the whole no one is righteous thing to get there, and I actually fall into that camp. But that might not solve the whole problem. Anyone else go this way? Yeah. Like, no one is righteous. Like, making that statement, well, what about Job or Enoch or people that said in the Old Testament weren't righteous? Right. That's one of the lessons that if you just looked at Job and ignored the rest of Scripture, you'd see that here is a person who's described as righteous who is suffering. And that's why all his friends saying, well, it must be because of some sin, ends up being something they get rebuked for because they don't know what they're talking about, and it isn't because of that. Right? So I agree with you that, that if we look just at that, it would cause a problem. Yeah. You can correct me on this if I'm wrong or if I'm not remembering it well. I think I remember that in the Hebrew there's two different words for kill. And like one has more of the connotation of murder. And that's the one that shows up in the Ten Commandments. But that's like a different killing than the killing that's talked about when the Canaanites and yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Let's, let's, uh, let's talk about the difference. First of all, it is right to point out that the question says that the Ten Commandments says, that shall not kill, but it doesn't say that shall not kill. It does say thou shall not murder, and there is an important distinction because in the Levitical law, 
God distinguished between different types of killing. Like if you accidentally killed somebody, there was a concept of manslaughter, and you could run to a safe house basically and be safe. Even God had different levels of intentional killing, which would be like murder, versus accidental killing, which would be more like manslaughter. And that concept, even our own laws in this country follow all the way back to that tradition. So you're right to correct that the question isn't just about killing, it's about murder. Now you might think that's just a nuance. Well, maybe not, because it's saying that it's not prohibiting justified killing. What's justified killing? Well, that would be something that if we could find that God is justified to do what he wants with his people, then that would definitely fall into that area so that God might be killing, but he's not murdering, so he's not violating the Ten Commandments as this question poses. That doesn't solve the whole problem for us, but it is at least to nuance the question right. Probably a better way to look at it. Yeah. Well, but at the same time, it would be uh, difficult to justify killing in a military sense if God tells you to go into a town let's say the Canaanites, and slaughter every single person. You're talking about old women. You're talking about old men. You're talking about pregnant women. You're talking about babies in their crib. You're talking about their pets. I think that could be construed as just plain, you know, murder. Look, if I was the editor on the new edition of the Bible, I would certainly take these stories out, all right? <laughs> uh, there'd be a few things that I would kind of just go into the editorial process and go like, the book's pretty thick the way it is. I don't know that we need to put in this story. It's probably good that we just get right to the Gospels and get moving on. Like Some of this is really interesting, but no. The more difficult thing is, do you hold a high view of Scripture and say, I accept all parts of it, including the fact that that did happen historically, and that the other verses that say that he is righteous, God, holy, blameless, cannot look upon evil, and that no one is righteous, could you harmonize those in a way that it comes out? Yes, you can. The question is then, do you buy what we've just harmonized? And that, for us, is really an important question. If you come up with difficult examples like a baby in the flood or an old lady or a pregnant woman or all those things, most of us kind of shrink back in terror and go, that's not right. But I will point out to you that that's coming from our own sinful understanding of what's right or wrong. And it's also coming from a place where we believe that there are some people who are righteous who should not be killed. And I don't know that that's true. Maybe we don't even have the right to assume that. Maybe there is no one righteous and that we all deserve death. And the only question is when and how. If you believe that God is just and he has the right to deal with us justly, although in most cases justice is, de is delayed, he doesn't have to wait. He could just wipe you out now, which means like, a whole people like the Canaanites, or a whole earth like the flood. Okay, but if we ask for justice, you have to be very careful when you ask for that, because most people don't really mean justice when they're asking for it. They're just meaning special dispensation in their circumstance. Comment? Um, you know, on the flood, it, it says the wickedness of man was so great in that time, and that his, his heart didn't have anything except for evil thoughts. Um, and Noah was pointed out as the only exception. It didn't even mention if his sons were an exception to it or not, but he saved Noah. And, he, and I would say that in some, in some situations, like in that situation, those children would have grown up being either seeing a lot more suffering than they would have ever seen in a different situation, or um, that they would have become as evil as everybody else was and ended up being completely contrary to God's will in their life. 
Yeah, I think that we can always find, like, like we could say, but if you let them live, they could have even had worse suffering. I don't disagree with that. But what I want to point out is if you're really going to stick to a God who has the right to deal with his people justly, then he can annihilate them even if they weren't going to suffer more. Just because they're evil and just because he's just. And if we then try to look for, but theoretically, if, and I, I'm not saying that's not true, but then what we're doing is we're trying to kind of come up with a utilitarian reason why God destroyed them as opposed to just he's God and he can. They're wicked and he's just. And even as Isaiah in his vision comes face to face with the living God in the throne room, realizes he's going to be annihilated. His words literally mean, I'm going to be annihilated. I've seen the living God. Like, it's over for me. There's no way out of this thing. All right? So even those kinds of concepts, I think we should just state them as difficult as they are. That's going to be really hard for people to hear. But it is answering the questions that you've asked as difficult as they are. All right, let me push forward. Can you have suffering without pain? And is God responsible for pain? I, I don't know that you could have suffering without pain. I, I, we tried to think about it from a number of different angles, but I think the answer is, I think that's what makes it suffering, is there is pain. Now, there could be different degrees of pain, and I want you to be very careful to think just because you're not in pain doesn't mean there isn't suffering. There's suffering going on all over the world, whether you care about it or not. So we can't use our personal pain to measure suffering. We should use the fact that there are different degrees of pain in other people, too. So even feeling for someone else's suffering can be said to bring us pain. That kind of thing, I think we, we wouldn't really be very empathetic if we didn't feel anything at all. Okay, so I'm sticking to God's sovereignty again and says, like, is he responsible for pain? Yeah, God does sometimes bring suffering. He says that. So if that brings pain, which I'm sure it does, then he is responsible for pain at times. And other times he allows it. And if you think that allowing it means he's responsible as well, uh, as long as you're not like adding moral culpability to it, just saying, yeah, he's a causal effect in it, letting it happen. Sure, I think that's where we get to the point of surrender. Like when we get to the point of surrender is when you go, God, I don't know what's going on and I'm in so much pain, but I do know a couple things. This could not be happening if you were not either causing it or allowing it. And if you're going to allow it or cause it, then I surrender to you. If you didn't have any pain, you would just be like, whatever, who cares? That's an intellectual argument. I don't know. Is he causing it, allowing it? I don't know. It doesn't matter. I'm not in pain. That's what brings us to the point of surrender in a lot of times. All right. I love this question. How is a person expected to reconcile the good, loving God that we're taught to know with the fierce, terrifying God who created the crocodile and let pythons loose? Who in here is scared of crocodiles and pythons? I want to know. What about the God who fully understands suffering and still lets it happen? It's kind of a nonsensical paradox in which good and horrifying exist in one being. Someone to fear and be drawn to love at the same time. This is a very deep question because it deals with our love for God. I think we need to understand love for God. That's where we struggle. I think we confuse God's love sometimes with kindness or gentleness. Or we think if God is loving, then he just can't do anything at all that would in any way discomfort me. I mean, God's love is one that also disciplines and punishes and prunes us to make us better. In fact, we looked at the verse in Revelation where Jesus is talking to the church at Laodicea and saying that because I love you, I will discipline you. There is some part of it that is not going to be something we enjoy. Again, most often in Scripture, the relationship that we see as a parent and a child. Jeremy pointed out yesterday when we were talking about this that it could be a matter of perspective. 
which is still troubling, but we have to at least consider it. It's a good comment. You know, maybe the Israelites see God as a very loving God, and the Egyptians see God as a very fierce and terrifying God who inflicts all sorts of pain upon them. Doesn't mean he doesn't have the right to do it, but they might not see that as a loving act because they're on the receiving end of it. You might not either see it as a loving act when you're on the receiving end of discipline. That's what Hebrews talks about. But it's still for your own good. It doesn't seem something that you want at the time, but later it produces all sorts of good things. Again, you might come back and say, how does losing your firstborn son as an Egyptian lead to good things? It might not for you. And our notion of God's holiness is often immature when we talk about God's love by itself. Again, Isaiah is going to be annihilated for just seeing God. Moses speaks to God almost as one face to face, it says, but cannot see God or else be annihilated. The sons of Aaron are basically dropped dead on the spot because they worship God in a little bit of a funny way that's not authorized by him. We kind of tend to cling to a very overblown view of love and forget that God's holiness and other attributes must be taken into consideration. So yes, there is a fierce God, maybe a terrifying one in a way, but it's in the way of the holiness of God. It brings us face to face with the living God who we can't even see. And even if you take one attribute of God like love, you can't take it all the way. Like think about this example. We say God is merciful. God is merciful. He gives everybody a chance to come to repentance. But if later, let's say at the judgment, somebody gives, give me just one last chance. And he goes, no, it's too late. Do we then say God's not merciful? There was one guy that asked for a chance. He didn't get it. He's just not merciful. Or is even his attributes, the way we understand them, tempered by other things? Is God's love tempered by justice? Is his mercy tempered by justice? How do I love a God who refuses to care for his people? I think we're the ones that refuse to care for his people. We should take full responsibility for this. I don't believe in a God who has left us to just do whatever we want. He's given us commandments that are clear, especially the ones about caring for other people. But I do believe that God created a world that has everything in it, enough for everyone. And it's our problem that we hoard, we don't share, and that's part of our sin and rebellion against God. Now, that doesn't answer it fully for some people, because they say, well, what about, like, doesn't God know that we're not going to help others? Doesn't he know that people in this country are going to have way more than they need and they're still going to be selfish and they're not going to share and we're going to waste all of our resources and waste everything we have and waste all of our money and lavish it all on ourselves and leave other people by the billions starving? Shouldn't he reinstitute the MANA program all over again? Shouldn't he just say, look, I know those people aren't going to do it, so just because I know they're bad and I love you people, I'm just going to start raining food down from heaven. Why not do that? I think that God actually allows us to experience the consequence of our choice. And he doesn't overwhelm this world or overwhelm our choices with daily miracles that would actually take away the consequences of every action. If we don't feed the world and God starts raining down manna, we hoard all the water resources and he starts raining down more rain. And then we start doing this and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. At some point, God is going to have to intervene in every single thing because at some point, the smallest thing is going to be charged to God as suffering. Philip. I, I agree with you. I think how you're saying that I experience the consequence of my choice, but it's realistic that like, other people experience the consequences of my choice. Like, 
and usually that's the way it works more often, like that other people are experiencing the consequences of our choices realistically. It's both. Yeah. You will experience it, maybe not here, maybe later, the consequence of that choice, right? And you may experience it here in some mild form. Other people may die as a result of your choice. And I think we never take collective responsibility for the choices we make as humans. We talked yesterday even about the choice to share the gospel or not. There are whole people groups in the world that don't know the gospel. Normally when we say that, we think, well, that's just because some Americans haven't gone to rescue the day yet, right? And gone in there enough to translate the Bible. Like, that's what's got to happen. Okay, but think about it from another point of view. I believe at one point everybody in the whole earth knew God. Maybe it was just Adam and Eve. Maybe it was just Noah and his sons. But at some point, everyone knew God. But people made decisions not to follow him. And that decision has affected entire people groups. There may be somebody who's born hundreds and hundreds of years later and say, like, how would I know about God? Well, it is on us that we're not taking the gospel to the world. That is on us. But it also may be on their ancestors who decided or made decisions not to pursue God or to actively tell people about a different God or to actively tell people that there is no God. And we never take collective responsibility for what our free will has done to this world. We only think about our own selves, which would be a very Western way to look at things. That's why God chooses to use his people. He chooses to partner with us. A theme that's come up over and over and over in other talks that we've done about why is there a great commission? Why does he send us out? Why does he just show up once a year and announce himself on New Year's with the fireworks and show everybody that he's really there? I don't know. I can't understand everything about God, but it does seem clear that he wants to work through us because he told us to do it. So how do I love a God who refuses to care for his people? Yeah, sure, I would love it if God rained down manna. I would. But God, for his purposes, is not doing that. But I do know that he's told us to rain down manna on them, and we're not doing it. Let me move through this question for a second. How can God be called just if he does not act fairly? First, our concept of fairness and justice is tainted by sin. So I don't know that we always know what justice is. In fact, I'm pretty sure that we often have a very slanted view that favors us. I believe that justice demands that we all deserve death. We should tremble at the thought of asking for justice, especially justice immediately delivered. For most of us, justice immediately delivered would be death. We don't really mean justice, like I said earlier. Sometimes we mean like some sort of way to change the situation. If we really want justice, it would have to be even-handedly delivered. Why do we want justice? Like in a certain situation, you go, that's not fair, we should have justice. Do you want justice just in that situation? or in all situations, and you want it immediately in all situations? I don't think we want that. What we really want is something to change the circumstance. I don't think we even know what we're asking when we say, like, that's not fair and I want justice. It's only by God's grace, which is undeserved favor, undeserved, and his mercy, which is withholding from us what we really do deserve right now, that we have any life or any peace or any prosperity at all. If God were to unleash the justice now, we'd all be in a world of hurt if it's unmitigated, if he doesn't have a plan for redemption, if it isn't by his grace that he somehow withholds some evil from this world. Jeremy? In my opinion, if we take that perspective, you take, like in the, in the previous point where you were talking about how everyone knew God and then they kind of degraded like, couldn't that even be tied to this kind of grander idea of all things being reconciled to God? Reconciliation even prior to creation. Okay. The really important thing that you said is that that reconciliation is not a new plan, which I've said before. It's not like plan B. It's always been there. I believe it existed beyond time. 
And that is the one thing that kind of solves a lot of the difficulty that we have with this is that unmitigated, that's what it would lead to. But God created knowing that this was going to happen and already had this in place at all times. It was always there. Yeah. I think this is connected to the idea you presented earlier. This was, and like, we don't deserve anything. Like, just because God creates us doesn't mean like we have the right to continue to live or that we have the right to enjoy every second of our existence. Like, and that it is always pleasurable and pleasant. Like, I think that we have that idea, but I don't think that's right. And so I think it's just this idea, like, we, it's wrong of God if anything, any aspect of our life is ever not full life forever and full peace and full prosperity. Like, when there's no, I don't see any reason outside of, like, God's just loving this generally, why that should be the case. But like you said, like, this love is tied with this other characteristic, which is why it isn't always the case. Yeah, the consequence of sin is death. Sin being brought into the world is evil. The consequence of evil is the whole creation has been frustrated and also is under the curse of sin. That should lead to the worst possible endings were it not for God withholding some of that from happening. And at times he'll allow a little bit more and pull back a little bit more. At times we've even seen him, like in scripture, causing it for whatever purpose. But in most cases we won't know if he's causing it or allowing it. We just know for sure that he's promised us that the consequence of a sin is death. The fact that we're still here means that he has delayed his justice and he has withheld his hand for whatever reason to give us life long enough to live. Let me skip to this real fast because the last thing that somebody asked was this. If God can experience all the suffering that everyone has ever felt, would he not need some serious therapy? Um, there's a question about does God suffer? And there's a number of answers in Scripture. Some places it says that he does suffer for his people. In other places it says that he doesn't. There's lots of theological debate about it. But I think the answer was, does he need therapy? And I think the answer is no. The closest verse I could find is, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Nobody. So he, there's nobody to counsel the Lord. So he can't get therapy even if he wanted it. All right? It's not going to happen. But there is a very interesting discussion that I'm not going to go into about does God feel pain? Does he suffer for his people? We definitely know he feels love. He feels he's not an unfeeling God. Does that include pain and suffering on behalf of his people? I would think yes. There's enough verses that would at least support it. Some people say no, God is not changeable that way and he's impassable. But I think that that, again, is a theological construct. You'd have to look at different verses and think, well, why are these here? And there are explanations that they have as to why they're there. We're not going to get into them. But if it makes you feel better to know that God empathizes and suffers along with you, then I can show you some of those verses if that helps answer the question. Okay? These are your questions. I think there's a couple of them we still haven't answered. Next week is what we're going to do. We're going to answer Philip's questions. <laughs> Philip, <laughs> Philip gave us a whole list of questions. So this would take care of everybody's questions in here. And then we have Philip's questions to get through. We're going to then wrap it all up. If I could pick a couple that are still troubling us, I think there's two that are still really troubling us. Like, isn't God still responsible because he made this happen? And what about those suffering innocents? Let's pray and close up. God, we are really a funny people that we think that we're going to somehow come to an answer over something that has been talked about and debated and people have struggled over and left the faith over for centuries. 
and that we think that somehow in this small corner of the world that we and our questions and the books that we've read are going to put all this together. So what I'm asking for above all understanding is peace and surrender and gratefulness and faith and the things that we should give to you whether or not we understand these things. Lord, they will trouble us. And not just because we can't get to the answers, but Lord, I am confident we couldn't even understand all of the answers. That we really are at the edge of our knowledge, that we're trying to understand this infinite God with finite minds and sinful understandings and our own presuppositions and everything that's inside of us, Lord. So forgive us. But we always wrestle with you, Lord, in this group because we know that you are a God who wants to be known and to know us. And this is our way, Lord, of trying to help others who have these questions. So bless that and give us your grace. Pray this in your name. Amen.